Inner, I'm an assistant pastor here, and I have an announcement. I will shortly no longer be the only assistant pastor. There's a young gentleman here who has introduced himself as a pastoral intern for Time Immemorial. What is it now, three years? He can't do that much longer. Tuesday afternoon at Presbytery, he was approved, uh, finally approved by Presbytery for ordination. And about five weeks from now, uh, now on uh, July 24th in the evening, he's scheduled to be ordained. Congratulations, Jamie. And I trust his name is going to be directly under Ryan Moore's name because he's scheduled for half time and I'm scheduled for no time. <laughs> so, I turn now to the reading of my text. Jamie has already introduced that this is Trinity Sunday and um, I am preaching on the doctrine of the Trinity, and I'm going to an unusual passage, perhaps, for it. I'm going to, actually, two different passages. I'm going to first uh, Galatians chapter 4, starting up with the fourth verse. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. God the Father sent forth his Son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God, the Father, has sent the Spirit of his Son, the Holy Spirit, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And from Ephesians chapter 2, a couple of different individual verses where we read, for through him, that is, through Jesus, we both, Gentiles and Jews, and you put in any other divided people's who are brought together in Christ through Jesus. We both have access in one spirit, one Holy Spirit, to the Father, to God the Father. Or verse 22. In him, that is in Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, that is God the Father, by the Spirit. Triadic passages. Let us pray. Holy God, let us see Jesus. We would join those Greeks that came at that Passover feast just before the Lord Jesus went to that cross. And we would say to you, Spirit, Holy Spirit, show us Jesus. We want to see him. And the Lord Jesus promised that you would be given and you would glorify the Son whom the Father has sent. And so may we see Jesus 
as we understand the role of the Father and of the Spirit in uniting us with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I have a question for you this morning. If you were to be asked, what does it mean to you that you're a Christian? At root, when you think about being a believer in Jesus Christ, with him as your savior, how does it make you experience life differently? Well, there's some not so good answers. You might say, well, I try to be good. I try to be like Jesus. Not entirely wrong, but not the best answer. Or, well, I believe the Bible. I believe whatever the Bible teaches. Uh, well, not wrong, but not really getting to the basics either. Or, I'm a member of such and such a church. I'm a member of Wallace. Well, that's good that you're associating with the people that Jesus has redeemed, but that's not a very good answer to what it should mean to you to be a believer. One who trusts for forgiveness of your sins through Jesus. What ought to be your basic perspective? And let me suggest this. I'm a child of God. The living God has adopted me through my Savior Jesus to be his child. I have access to him. And it's not presumption. A Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, was poured out upon me. And I have the confidence to know that Jesus' death on the cross took away my guilt, my shame. I have the confidence to know that I can actually pray to a holy God and he hears and he answers me, and I'm not being presumptuous about it. I'm a child of God. Now, if this is what you believe, if this is how you feel, then I would submit to you that you already have a tacit understanding of what the church means by that challenging, esoteric doctrine of the Holy Trinity. You've already experienced a Savior, and you are rejoicing in a Heavenly Father, and you are dependent upon the Holy Spirit's enabling power to reach that kind of confidence. Did you notice that it was in the last stanza of the new hymn of the month, it, that I'm trusting in what my Father, my gracious Heavenly Father provides and what he's going to do for me in this life and the next. So, I would suggest to you 
that don't be afraid of the doctrine of the Trinity because it seems so difficult or because it's not readily clear what it is. There's deep mystery there, and you're not alone if you don't understand it. In fact, if you think you understand it, there's a problem. The po but it's something we grasp by faith and rejoice in. And what I want you to do, uh, what I want to do this morning is to help you as a believer, not to be father forgetful. If you're a child of Jesus and you're trying to follow Jesus, you read the Gospels and there's nothing about him that was forgetful of his father. He was constantly in relationship to his father. And as you follow Jesus, you want to do the same thing. You don't want to be father forgetful. And at the same time, you don't want to be spirit-ignoring. Because this, when, when the, Jesus was about to leave his disciples, and they were in deep pain and sadness, because he was going to go, they didn't know exactly why or how, but he was obviously leaving, and he was telling them that. And what he did to comfort them, it said, we're sending you another comforter. And that other comforter is yours, the Holy Spirit. And if you are like your Savior Jesus, you're going to rejoice in that gift. So, I want to help you to be neither father forgetful nor spirit ignoring. And what I want to do, I got three points here. Surprise. Uh, three points. Who is God in his ultimate essential nature? Or what is God? And I would suggest to you that out of who God really is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. And by the way, it took the church centuries to come up with these words. And these words are problematic. They can be misunderstood. One in substance, three in person. That word person is an unnecessary compromise. We haven't figured out anything better yet. Unless you're Greek, and then you can say hypostasis. Uh, but if you're English-speaking, you're almost stuck with this word person, and it can be misunderstood to be three gods. But it's not three gods. It's one god. But it took... J.R. Packer said this was one of the most difficult tasks the church had to accomplish to try to describe this, and it took several centuries. It took, uh, well, if he, uh, the Council of Nicaea, 325, and then that had to be fixed with the Council of Constantinople, 381, 50 years later plus, and then again, work on it in 431, and then again in 451, more than a century as they kept working on it and got it together. But, what I want you to do uh, 
here this morning is to understand that out of that triune God, you, in your salvation, are direct participants of who God is. That triune God, what was he doing in eternity before creation? He was, they were knowing and loving and delighting and rejoicing in one another. Got that? It's mysterious. In all eternity past, God was not a hermit. He was rejoicing in the Son. The Father was rejoicing in the Son. The Son was rejoicing in the Father. The Holy Spirit was rejoicing in the Father and Son. We don't understand how they interact entirely, but what we do know is there was community. One of the books that was read when we still had Theology Breakfast here was Being as Communion. What does it mean for God to be? It means for him to be in communion. The Father with the Son, the Son with the Father, the Holy Spirit with the Father and Son. That life of God was shared first in creation and then in redemption with the redeemed. And I have three points. The first point is that we become participants in the knowledge of the triune God as we are joined with Christ and trust in him. Second point, we become participants in the blessedness of the triune God. And third, we become participants in the love of the triune God, the three persons for each other. First, the knowledge of God. That we become participants in the knowledge of God. Why? What, was the, what is eternal life? There's a definition of what eternal life is in our Savior's uh, prayer to his Father, given in the context of the disciples. If you want to know where that prayer is, it's right after those, the upper room discourse, John chapter 13, 14, and 15, and 16, and then chapter 17. And in that chapter, we hear this profound prayer of the Son to the Father. And he does it conscious that his disciples are listening in and are going to be able to pass this on to you and to me. He prays for the 11 disciples that were faithful after he was restored them. <laughs> um, and he prays for you and me, who believe through their word. And he defines what eternal life is. And he says eternal life is to know God, to know the Father. That's what eternal life is, the knowledge of God. You wonder what you're going to do in heaven forever? 
You're going to know God. You're going to know about God, about God's works, and I don't think his works of creation end. I think they're renewed and probably greatly expanded in the new heavens and in the new earth that's promised us. You're going to know God and about God, but also to know him in a way that you don't know him now. And now we see in a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face. We will get to know God. And that's what salvation is. And salvation is God opening, the triune God opening the doors of his own nature and sharing with you the knowledge of himself. And so the Son is sent by the Father to reveal the Father. And the Father comes and reveals, or, or the Son comes and reveals the Father. And the, at Pentecost, the Spirit comes and glorifies the Son in order that the, we might see through the Son to the Father. So that we might enter into the uh, life of the Holy Trinity with this connection, this communion, this fellowship. We, you have tacit knowledge of that if you can pray, Father in heaven. That's powerful. In our church in New Jersey, there was a, a woman that uh, got into connection with us. Our church was in her hometown. And she had some connection with the, the church planter uh, through the court system. She was a social worker. And he brought her into this little uh, church plant. And she heard us pray. And she thought, I want to pray like that. I want to pray with the confidence that I'm reaching God. And you know what? She came, she trusted in Jesus for her salvation, and now, what is it, 40 years later? Yes, it's more than 40 years later. She's been a faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus. Your prayers are witnesses to the surrounding world of how the Holy Trinity has brought you into communion, into fellowship with him. Our prayer life is precisely what is emphasized in my text. I should get back to my Galatians text. Through the Holy Spirit, we, pray, we cry out, Abba, Father. Paul says the same thing in Romans 8. It's by the Holy Spirit that we're enabled to cry, Abba, Father, some of you here can remember uh, Stephen Coleman, and I remember clearly Stephen Coleman saying, definitely Abba does not mean daddy, but it sure does mean something affectionate. It sure does mean something more than the powerful creator. When you think of God, do you think of God 
as a heavenly father who cares and loves or cares and loves his children? Or do you think of him as an angry judge? If you have trouble uniting God's love and God's anger, think of this. God's anger arises precisely because he loves. And when those he loves are mistreated, shown evil, oppressed, uh, ridiculed, then his anger will arise out of his love. How many of us parents, if we saw our chil- uh, one of our children being abused, would be oblivious or ignore it? If we did, surely our conscience should strike us. It's precisely because we love that we get angry when our kids are unjustly treated. Well, the knowledge of the triune God, the three persons together, we enter into it. But I need to move to my second point. And the second point is a little more difficult. Maybe a few of you could remember a psalm, a sermon I did on Psalm 134 a few years ago where I preached about the blessedness of God. I don't expect any of you to remember. I had to look up what I said. So, blessedness of God. What is it? A state of being blessed at peace, not afraid, not attacked, or if attacked, secure in the midst of the attack. The blessedness of God is a description of God throughout the Old Testament. Oh, my soul, bless the Lord. We're acknowledging that God is blessed, secure in his peace, in his uh, delight in who he is and what he does. If God were a computer, he could not be hacked. God dwells in unapproachable light, but also with us. That's how we opened the service this morning from Isaiah 57. But in his highest heaven, he is unassailable, secure, blessed, He's delighting in his perfections. He has done that from all eternity and will continue to do that. But out of that blessedness, we have always, throughout the Old Testament, we learned that God takes, as it were, some of his own blessing and showers it upon those he chooses to bless. And so the ironic blessing is that God will bless his people. And give them peace. The peace of his blessedness. 
Well, in salvation, I would suggest to you that holy trinity blessedness is shared with all the redeemed. As God delights in his perfections, he teaches us to do the same. At times in your private devotions, you have thanksgiving, you have petition, uh, you have praise for what God has done. Do you also have times of simple adoration? Talking to God about who he is in himself, contemplating his perfections, contemplating the fact that he is secure. And there's no possible hindrance from outside of his blessedness. That kind of a God can be trusted that kind of a God can, when he decides to share his blessedness, that kind of a God is a, is, is a God who actually uh, can be asked for help because he's secure, because he's omnipotent, because he um, will not fail. Um, Pastor Ryan's sermon last week on Pentecost was powerful. His point, one of his points, I think his first point was, Pentecost proves to you that the kingdom of God will succeed. It will be advanced. That's partly what I'm saying right now. Out of the blessedness of God, which is God shares with us, we are confident that we will at one time enter the blessed hope. The blessed hope where we have an undefiled, unfading, and I forget the, uh, the other adjective uh, from First Peter, an inheritance held up for us in glory. That is what God, the blessed trinity in his blessed perfections is sharing with us. Out of his security, out of his secure blessedness, we are blessed. His blessing cannot be hampered. His blessedness cannot be hampered. It cannot be disturbed because it's secure. And ours and glory will also be equally secure. Let me move on to my last point here. The love of the Trinity. In some ways, this is the most astounding. If you read the Gospels and you look at Jesus, one of the things that you see there as you you, you try to get a feel for who this 
Jesus of Nazareth is. Is he God? We say he is God. But does he look like God? Does he walk around telling the winds and the waves to be quiet all the time? Does he walk around all the time saying your sins are forgiven? What you see when you read the Gospels is Jesus walking around as the Son of Man who cares for his neighbor, who grieves for the sheep that are, without, that, that are lost and straying without a shepherd, and he, sh he grieves as the Son of Man, but he does it as the Son of God, constantly turning to the Father, this God, uh, uh, and this is a reflection of the Father's love for Jesus, the Father's love for the Son, and of Jesus' love for the Father. And that love was eternal. That love was what God was doing in all eternity. There's a definition in 1 John chapter 4. God is love at his heart. In his essence, in his being as communing with the Son and the Spirit, he's loving. And the Spirit and the Son return that love. But in redemption, after the fallen creation, he opens up this love to a lost and hurting world. For God so loved the world. What kind of a world did God love? It was a sinful world. It was a hurting world. It was a world where he wanted to share his love by sending his son. And so he sent his son. Jesus' atoning work now enables us to enter into that love in a way that the Old Testament foreshadowed but didn't completely understand. Because the Old Testament really wasn't able to understand this dynamic of the triune God because the time was not yet fulfilled. When the time was fulfilled, that's when the Son was revealed as the Son of the Father. And that's when, or rather, after that at Pentecost, that's when the Spirit came in the full magnificence, in the full power uh, that was predicted in the Old Testament, foreshadowed in the Old Testament, but really completed in the New Testament. So, that love of the persons of the triune God for each other is shared with us. And I go with you right now to um, the end of um, that high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. After the upper room discourse, just before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, he's prayed this powerful prayer. And I'm not going to read it all. I want to read the very last verse. Jesus says, I made known to them your name. 
Jesus revealed the name, the character of God to his disciples. As he started the upper room discourse, he said, I'm going to the Father. And Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, Philip, I've been here with you so long. Haven't you seen the Father? I have shown you the Father. You see me, you see the Father. The knowledge of the Father is revealed. So Jesus says, I have made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known through the Holy Spirit. Jesus continues to make us know the Father. And now there's a, there's a purpose clause here. Why is Jesus making known the name of the Father? Because, so that, the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The Blessed Trinity shares its eternal love with us. We were made in the image of God. It's one of those passages where there's a, a, a kind of a precursive, uh, kind of a little tidbit making you, what, what does that mean? Let us make man in our image and so god made adam and eve male and female in his image what did it mean that he was made that we're made in his image if you study the history of theology it's a lot of different things rational mind the ability to be act morally uh, the ability to enter into relationship with the Holy God, assuming we're righteous or we have forgiveness. The ability to rule over creation, lots of things. But perhaps at the core, if God is love and he makes us in his image, it means that he makes us lovers. Have you thought about that? To be in the image of God is to be able to love. And what are you loving? What were we called to love? Our God. And then secondarily, our neighbor, like ourselves. And what did Eve see to love? She saw that if she took that forbidden fruit, it would, looked good. It would be good. It would give her wisdom. And so she took the step that all of us have followed since. We don't start off loving God or our neighbor. We start off loving ourselves. And we move on to loving all kinds of things, pleasure, possessions, fame, success. And what God needs to do to save us, to restore that fallen image that enables us to love like the triune persons of the Trinity love each other, he needs to grant us love. 
And so Jesus prays to his heavenly Father. I made known to them your name so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. Now who's praying? The Word. The Word made flesh. The eternal Word. The Son of God. Is this prayer likely to be answered? For you? For me? It will be answered. It is being answered. That's why Jesus gave that great commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. And that, my friends, is how the blessedness, the knowledge, and the love of the Holy Trinity is shed abroad in our hearts through the revelation of the three persons of the Trinity. We share in the communion, the knowledge of the Father. We share in the blessedness of our triune God. We share with one another in the love of God. Now, I'm quite aware that my, I could have had lots more points. And maybe I'll have another point when we go to communion. What I encourage you to do is go home and figure out how many other points you could add. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, what a privilege to come into your presence through Jesus, confident that the Holy Spirit is helping us form our words to do it as if it's really true, and it is true. Because you are true and faithful living God. And you've graciously brought us into your presence. And you will keep us there ultimately forever in the blessed hope laid up for us. As we go to the table just now, show us again Jesus. Show us Jesus over and over again, but show us Jesus in the context that Jesus is your loving, obedient Son. And we too, through him, can love you, our Heavenly Father, and obey you in the strength of the Spirit whom you give. So we pray in the name of our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.